Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. The context of that is the laying on of hands is not talking about what we do to see people get healed. I believe in that. I believe there's other texts for that. It's not talking about baptisms like we do when we get people saved and then we baptize them in water. That's not the text for it. There's other texts for that. This Hebrews 6 text is when you lay your hands on the heads of animals and confess your sin over them. And the word for baptisms here has to do with the mikvahs or the divers' washings and the old ceremonial rules of the divers' washings that they were going through. What he's saying is, if you have, he said, let's move on from, come on, bringing our animals every week. We're trying to see stuff through a 21st century lens. And he's talking about, let's go on to perfection. The word perfection there is not a verb. It's not a doing thing. The word perfection there is a noun. It's something that's already done. How I many know we need to go into the perfect one? And I could teach all day just on that. But when he says, if you sin willfully, he's talking to Hebrews who are wanting to go back to Judaism. And the whole book of Hebrews is what's better about the new covenant that's better than the old. He's better than Levi. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Moses. There's a better promised land. There's better blood. There's better sacrifices. There's a better tabernacle. There's a better city. There's a better faith. Everything about it's better. That's what the book of Hebrews is trying to tell these Hebrews that Paul is admonishing them as he comes to the end of the book of Hebrews and reiterates the Hebrews 6 passage saying certain fearful is looking for a fire indignation that's about to come because if you sin willfully, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, what he was saying to them, if you sin willfully, the word sin here means to miss the mark. How many of the mark changed in the new covenant? The mark that we were trying to hit under the old covenant was keeping all the rules of the old covenant, except not even Moses made that. The mark in the new covenant is the image of the stature of the fullness of Christ and it is him who is the mark. But how many know if you sin willfully, what he's saying to these Hebrews is if you miss the mark on purpose and you take your lamb back to the tabernacle, once you've tasted the power of the age to come, King James calls it the world to come. Again, it was the age to come. The age that was fading was the old covenant age. The age to come was the birthing of the new covenant age. And it was coming like a woman in travail. Birth pains were everywhere of God's new world coming on the scene. And when he began to say, if you sin willfully, in other words, if you do on purpose go back to Judaism, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. In other words, what he's saying is, there's not another lamb coming. He's not telling you you're forever lost. He's saying, listen, folks, if you go back to that and you offer the blood of a bull, and I know folk are all up in the air right now about a red heifer. I can tell you, just like I said in the seminar, the only thing exciting me about a red heifer is a prime river about that thick. If you cook it just right, I'll put it in the Feast of Tabernacles. 
I cannot believe that Christians would even be drawn away by the thought of the possibility of something that would insult the spirit of grace and the blood of Jesus because if you think there's any power in the blood of a bull or a goat, you have somehow missed the power of the blood of Jesus that was a once-for-all sacrifice, that there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. So it is in this context that Peter is saying to them, listen, in the last days, scoffers are going to come. He's not talking about the last days of this age. He was talking to his contemporaries who were saying, it looks like everything's continuing. They're still lighting candles. They're still baking bread. They're still killing animals. It looks like everything continues as they were. And he tells you why God was delaying was because he's not willing that any would perish, but that they would come, come on somebody, to repentance. And then he begins to talk about the elements would melt with a fervent heat and that there would come a fire and that there would be a passing away of an old heaven and an old earth and there would come on the scene a new heaven and a new earth. Now let me just talk to you a little bit about Bible context stuff. If you go back through the scriptures and you start looking at this terminology, it's one of the places, I, I, I have it in my notes, uh, I, I'll read it for you, I don't know if they could bring it up quickly or not, but in... Uh, I believe it is Isaiah. Let me see if I got the passage. Isaiah 51, verses 12 through 16 says, I, even I am he that comforteth you. Who, who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of man that shall die and of the son of man which shall be made as grass? And forget us, the Lord thy maker, and has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? The captive exile hasteneth that he may be loose, that he may not die in the pit, nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord your God that divides the sea, whose waves reward the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth, and I have covered you in the shadow of mine hand, that I might plant the heavens and lay the foundation of the earth, and say to Zion, you are my people. When God made covenant with Israel and called them Zion, that is when he laid the foundations of the earth and stretched out the heavens. When we think about heaven and earth, let me say it like this. Boy, I wish I had two more days, first of all. Let me just say it like this. God put his image in every tabernacle. How many of the temples, all of the tabernacles are temples. God said, let them build me a house so that I can dwell among them. That would be the place where God and man can meet together. I'm not doing this justice this morning yet. How many know that when they created the temple, it was a pattern of the heavens? So, you know, I mean, I could literally take the tabernacle of Moses and show you that every piece of furniture in the tabernacle is a picture of the redemptive work of Christ, and every piece of furniture is arranged at a bleeding spot where Jesus bled. And it is a revelation of God's redemptive work from the outer court to the inner court, and it was where God would meet with man. When God came down to meet with Israel or Jacob, when he wrestled with the angel, he said he saw the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. And there was a ladder let down, and he said, this is none other than the house of God, and this is Bethel. This is where heaven and earth come together. How many know in the beginning when God created man in his image and in his likeness, how many know that man was made from the dust of the ground? And I can see God when he leaned over the balconies of glory and began to shape in the earth the, his image. He's putting his image in the earth because he's building a temple. His temple was 
the whole earth. And how many know the last thing he would put in his temple was a man in his image and in his likeness? Come on, somebody, so that the earth could be filled with the glory of the Lord. And how many know Genesis 1, verse 6? Go back and watch these vid videos. But Genesis 1, verse 6 says that where the above water was separated from the beneath water, what was in between them is called the firmament. How many know that the above water hangs in what we call clouds? The beneath water is in ocean seas and ponds. And the firmament was what divided the above water from the beneath water. So would you agree with me that we are standing in the firmament? I needed a verbal amen. In Genesis 1, 6, and God called the firmament where we're standing right now, heaven. Capital H-E-A-V-E-N. What he said, I'm saying heaven was here before Adam released death and hell on the planet. And can I tell you that that man was the interface that brought both of them together. I mean, when God leaned over the balconies of glory like the hand of a great potter, he started to shape his image and likeness into a man. He might have done it like a snow angel. He might have just made a divine impression. But I can see Michael look over at Gabriel and say, yeah, but he's out of the earth and he's earthy. But God said, I'm not finished yet. And about that moment, he, he fills his lungs full of the breath of spirit substance, comes down on Adam, a man of dust, and breathes into him the breath of life. And man becomes a living soul in heaven and earth, found their interface. God and man came together, the visible and the invisible heaven and earth were located in the man so that Adam could walk with God and no angels by their name at the same time operate kingdom business in the earth and say if that's a giraffe God said that's a giraffe if he called it a hippopotamus it was a hippopotamus sometimes I don't know how much we realize that our words are powerful what are you going to call it Adam I'm going to call him the righteousness of God the first Adam, come on, did it out of rebellion. I'm headed somewhere this morning. I'm, this is going to be deep. I can see when God leans over the balconies of glory and, and makes that, he is to the blue ball called earth what God was to the invisible realm called heaven. He was God's vice regent in the earth, and he was blessed to be a blessing, to be fruitful, to multiply, to replenish, and have dominion. God has never changed his mind about plan A. See, what's he want for my life? He wants you to be fruitful, multiply, replenish, have dominion. Somebody's going to believe this. That was the connector in heaven and earth was all together. Isn't it amazing that it starts in the garden? In Genesis, it ends in a garden in Revelation. Adam has a garden. Turns it into a graveyard. Jesus takes a graveyard, turns it into a garden. Adam has access to a tree of life. He chooses a tree of death. Jesus chooses a tree of death, turns it into a tree of life. Adam sins. He's cursed. You'll earn your bread by the sweat of your brow, and the earth will bring forth thorns and thistles. Jesus wears a crown of thorns to redeem you from that curse. He prays until he sweats. He sweats until he bleeds because he knows if he sweats until he bleeds and one drop of blood ever touches a cursed earth, it'll put the curse in reverse that says you've got to earn your bread. Somebody ought to get happy with me. Adam is chased out of the garden and there's two angels put at the east of the garden to keep the way of the tree of life. Jesus gets up out of a grave in a garden and Mary walks up to him and said, Sir, I thought you were the gardener. He, in fact, was the gardener. He just put him back in the finished work. Redemption and God's new creation by the resurrection of the dead is now underway. 
And when Mary stooped down to look into the tomb of of Jesus, there's an angel standing at the head and one at the foot. It's the same two angels he put at the east of the garden to keep the way of the tree of life. They're saying, this is the way. Walk ye in it. There's a blood-sprinkled mercy seat. The first Adam was about to lose that place. Heaven and earth were about to separate. I could see Eve take the the apple, and we know it wasn't not a literal apple, but say with apple, but stay with me. The scripture said that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not deceived. I think some of of it was Adam's thinking, "Hey, I've been commissioned to leave and cleave, and I can't leave and cleave." <laughs> And I could see God look over at the sun. This conversation go on in the divine trinity. You can see Jesus say to the Father, He's going to leave us. He's going to leave us. He's going to intentionally eat of that tree that I told Him not to. I can see God the Father look back at the Son and say, How do you know he's going to leave us? Jesus says, it's because it's what I would do. But the first Adam is going to leave and get his wife out of rebellion. But the last Adam is going to leave out of obedience and go get his bride. And he's going to leave and cleave. Come on, somebody. And if I got enough time this morning, I'm going to tell you, you ain't going to get married. You're already married to him. That on Calvary's tree, when the spear of a Roman soldier opened the side of Jesus, it was a repeat of what happened in Eden's mystic garden when God opened the side of Adam and brought to him a woman. When the blood and water spilled out of the side of Jesus on Calvary's tree, the blood and water splashed on a woman underneath of the cross that was symbolic of, come on, he brought us to Ephesians 5 says, he has presented us to himself not having spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing. How many know the new covenant is your marriage certificate? You're the bride of Christ you're already married to him come on somebody you've got the MasterCard. don't leave home without it amen the new covenant is your marriage certificate and, and Romans 7 tells us that we're not going to get married that's not some future event Romans 7 said we should be married to him even to him who was raised from the dead that we could bring forth fruit to God and I say it like this the new covenant is your marriage certificate and that's the reason people don't get intimate is because they don't know they're married to him because if there's no wed there's no bed come on somebody no covenant no loving it that sounds like a bumper sticker but I believe it's still good preaching Come on, somebody. You want, you want a divine romance? Read the Song of Solomon. But I'm after something here this morning because God's heaven and earth was in the man in the beginning. But two or four thousand years later, when God was about to reconnect the interface between the heavens and the earth, he would, hallelujah, he would touch a girl by the name of Mary and place in her womb. Come on. The human and the divine would come together. The visible and the invisible. The heavenly and the earthly would come together one more time in God's for, for his, his patterned son. 
in his son Jesus, God would connect both heaven and earth, that he would be the place that could reach up and grab a hold of God on Calvary's tree with one hand, reach down and grab the human family with the other, and bring them together at the cross where it vertically and horizontally connects and says, I'm going to reconnect the interface. I'm going to bring heaven and earth together, and I'm going to do it in a new temple that's why he would say in the opening of John 1, there's so much I could preach. John 1 is a repeat of Genesis. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the great deep. In other words, Jesus was a repeat of the Genesis thing. In him, all things are held together. He is the place where heaven and earth met together, where God was bringing back together, reconciling both which was in heaven, the book of Ephesians, and that which is in the earth. He's bringing it together. I'm going to just say it like this, to create a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And in John 1, at the end of the chapter, he calls Nathaniel, and he, when he calls Nathaniel, he says to him, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says, or Jesus, he marvels. And Jesus looks at him, he says, Nathaniel, don't marvel that I saw you under the fig tree. Because from henceforth, you're going to see the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man. What he's saying is, at, at Bethel, where Jacob wrestled with the angel, he said, this is the house of God, and this is none other than the gate of heaven because he saw angels of God ascend and descend at Bethel. But when Jesus stands up and says, you're going to see the, Son of, you're going to see the angels of God ascend and descend on the Son of Man, what he's saying to them is, I am the house of God. And in that same chapter, he walks into the temple and says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'm going to raise this bad boy up again. He's talking about moving out of that old box where we isolate this God and keep him over there somewhere where we meet with him on Sunday. And he's bringing him to a larger audience. And then Paul grabs it and says, what do you not know? You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Come on, somebody. You are the temple. You are where heaven and earth meet together. You are the interface. Oh, I could preach. Oh, I don't, what, man, I don't know what's on me this morning. Hallelujah. But I like what Malachi says. I'm going to open you. I'm going to open you, windows of heaven. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Come on, we got a room full of windows and gates. You're looking for the spout where the glory comes out, but you're sitting right beside of one of them. Because I'm going to open you up. I'm going to pour you out a blessing. 
We come to church with this, here's my cup, Lord. I lift it up, and I'm always coming to need-based, man-centered, fill my cup. When I need to start coming and saying, listen, even after I get filled back up, I'm going to leave here, but I'm going to encounter some folk when I get out there that's going to need me to open some windows and doors where heaven and earth can start to invade. Come on. Some of us need heaven to invade our families. That We need them to invade our finances. We need them to invade our government. We need them to invade our schools. We need some windows. I could preach all day on that because it was four lepers set up to entering into the gate when there was a famine in the land and stuff was bad. But four of them, four guys with nothing to lose, got up and said, hallelujah. And they were mocking them, said, if God would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Because the prophet prophesied that tomorrow about this time, there is going to be abundance. There's going to be a change. Something's going to happen. He was preaching good news when it didn't look like good news. Uh, he was preaching favor when it didn't look like favor. Sound like something Jesus would do in his first public message in the middle of Roman occupation with chaos everywhere. He stood up and said, the Spirit of the Lord God's on me. Because he's just sent me to declare the year of the favor of our God. He preached favor in the middle of crisis. Because you don't change stuff crying doom and despair and the sky is falling. You don't get dead bones to rattle by telling them how dead they are and how dry they are, you get dead burns to rise by prophesying and releasing the wind. You get results by prophesying live. If you think I'm crazy and out of my mind, leave me alone. I'm not out of my mind. I'm out of yours. But I'm trying to get you in mind because I believe it's the mind of Christ for right now is that heaven and earth come together in a people and God opens some doors and windows and heaven and earth begin to come. Matthew 5 is to me a nail in the coffin to many of my grace friends because I've been a grace preacher for a number of years. Matthew 5 said, but what one jot or tittle of the law will pass. He said, heaven and earth will pass away before one jot or one tittle of the law is, fails. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets so that every jot and tittle of the law was passing away. And a new heaven and a new earth came on the scene. A new covenant, a new temple, a new bride, a new Jerusalem, a new day, a new covenant. Come on, somebody. His mercies are new every morning with new tongues. Everything being made new. Am I making sense this morning? Let, let, me, let me catch this verse for you. Revelation, let me, I'm going to jump out of context. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, 2, and 3. I think if you could get it for me, possibly in the Message Bible. I think, see, the book of Revelation begins. Let me look what time it is. Oh, we're doing good. The book of Revelation begins by saying, come and see, come and see, come and see. Come and see. One of the things he says in the beginning is, to him who overcomes, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down from God out of heaven. So he says to him that overcomes, I'm going to write upon him the name of the city of my God, and he leaves no question about it, which is New Jerusalem. Let me submit this thought to you. New Jerusalem is not a place. It's a people. It is the, I'll show you in just a few moments in Revelation. It is the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he'll use three different icons to describe that. So if you don't get one of them, you can get the other one. 
But he's saying, come and see, come and see, come and see. And so then he opens the latter part of the book of Revelation. He starts saying, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And I hope as this seminar, which is, I promise you, I've skimmed the surface in, comes to an end that you will stand and say, and I saw, I saw, I saw some stuff I didn't see before. What did you see, John? Revelation 21, verse number can you bring that up for me? Verse number one, maybe through three. Or, uh, she's getting it. And I saw heaven and earth gone. The first heaven gone, the first earth gone. Gone the sea. And I, I saw holy Jerusalem new created, descending resplendent out of heaven as, a, as ready for God as a bride for her husband. And I heard a voice thunder from the throne. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood making his home with men. They're his people. He's their God. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death gone for good. Tears gone. Crying gone. Pain gone. All the first order of things gone. The throne continued. Look, I am making everything new. Write it all down. Each word dependable and accurate. Now let me stop here for a moment. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there was no more sea. If you ask any Hebrew Jewish boy, even today, when I say to you, heaven and earth, what do you think of? They will say, our temple and our covenant. Because Josephus writes concerning the temple, and he said it was as it were the universal gate of heaven. It was, how many of you know, I, I, I tracked with what I've said, the temples was the place where God met with men. But when he's saying, gone the first heaven, gone the first earth, there was no more sea. He's talking not about an ocean drying up when he says there was no more sea. He's talking about the brazen sea or the sea of glass. Help me, Holy Ghost. That was in the tabernacle of Moses, and Solomon specifically called it the sea of glass. What he's saying is, this temple and this heaven and this earth is about to pass away. Now, let me tell you that when Peter is writing here and he's saying the elements are about to melt with a fervent heat and we, according to his promise, are looking for a new heaven and a new earth. And we are hasting to. In other words, we are saying, come on, man. He's not talking about a cosmic collapse. He was talking about what Jesus had prophesied, that within that generation, that temple would be destroyed. And that covenant would be moved off of the scene. And when it did, there would come a new heaven and a new earth and a new covenant and a new tabernacle and a new Jerusalem. I'm going to show you some more scripture. What really caught my attention, and especially the book of Peter's, is when he said the elements would melt with a fervent heat. Bring my Galatians text up. Help me, Holy Ghost. We're covering pretty good this morning. Hallelujah. I know this is probably some real mind-shaking stuff to some of you, but I hope you're hearing what I'm saying this morning. Am I communicating all right? You don't have to agree with me, but you just have to listen to what I have to say. Uh, Galatians 4, verses 1 through 2. Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed unto the fathers. Even so, we... When we were children, were in bondage. You see this next phrase? Under the elements, the elements of the world, 
You see this word elements? Same Greek word Peter's using when he says the elements are about to melt with a fervent heat. He's not talking about a nuclear exchange. Well, I thought I'd get a little bit more happy response about that. He's not talking about something out in the distant future when we watch the news and think, oh, this is prophecy coming to pass. This was written to people that would be relevant to Peter writing to them. He's telling them the elements are about to melt with a fervent heat. What elements specifically? This is the Greek word stoichion. And it is only ever used to describe the law of Moses because he's talking about when we were children, we were under the elementary things, touch not, taste not, handle not, the elementary things of the law. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth the Son made of a woman. Made of I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.